0: following audio is from the Anglican Church, Caroline Springs. For more information about the church, go to taccs.org.au. Name the series, Who is Jesus? Because I think that's the central question that John wants us to answer as we read his gospel. And uh, if you want to find out why John wrote this gospel, then all you need to do is flick over to uh, chapter 20, you don't have to do that right now, but I'll tell you what it says. And in your Bible, the editors have probably added a little title that says the purpose of this book. So it's good to know the purpose of a book before you read the book so that you can understand the book better. And John says this in John 20, verse 30 to 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written... So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So that's why John's written the book. uh, We're preaching this series asking the question, who is Jesus? And John wants us to see that the answer is, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing that about him, and trusting what he's done for us, we might have life in his name. For John, life is an important word, and it means both abundant life in, in this life, joy in knowing God, and eternal life in the age to come. And so the question we want to be asking every week is, who is Jesus? And John says that the signs that he records are signs, signposts, pointers to the reality of Jesus identity as God himself. And this morning, we're going to see the first sign that John records, the sign of Jesus turning water into wine. And we're going to see in all three uh, situations this morning, three different little stories that John records for us, that they all point to the reality that in Jesus, we have new access to God that we didn't once have, that we have a new what's called a covenant with God, a new promise from God that all who turn to Him in Jesus, all who put their trust in Jesus, will be welcomed into His family, into His kingdom. That's the new covenant, the new relationship that John's going to be talking about this morning. So let's get right into it. I'm going to start at verse 1 to 4, and we're just going to walk through this together, okay? John 2, 1 to 4. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the, new, uh, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So the context for this uh, report of John being one of Jesus' disciples who was there to witness this, invited to the wedding, uh, his report sets the context in, uh, at a wedding in Cana, Jesus is invited, his mother Mary is invited, the disciples are invited as well, and the situation has just turned very dire. The wine has run out. The wine has run out. In Jesus' context, wa- uh, weddings would last up to a week long. I know we're going to pray a little bit later on for, for Chris and Jackie who are getting married uh, next week. Um, the wedding, I assume, is not going to be a week-long wedding. That would be exhausting. But in this uh, day and age, a wedding could last up to a week. And so you needed a lot of wine for those who were invited to the wedding. In this situation, it doesn't tell us how far into the wedding it, has go- it, it is, but the wine has definitely run out. And uh, some traditional documents tell us that um, the, the groom was um, responsible for planning the, the entire wedding and providing for the entire wedding, right? Daddies of daughters like that idea. We, we should bring that back in, I think, right? The, the groom is responsible. And, and the traditional documents, ancient documents, tell us that this, this situation, running out of wine, would be grounds for a lawsuit against the groom. That's how important the wine is at the wedding, okay? You could sue this guy because the wine has run out. So Mary comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine." Some scholars stipulate that Mary had some kind of catering role at the wedding, and this is why she noticed and and came to Jesus. We don't know that for sure. Um, Others say that at this point, Joseph has died. Mary is a widow. Um, That's probably quite likely. Jesus goes from being known as the carpenter's son to the carpenter, probably taking over his dad's trade. Um, And so at this point, Mary's probably very dependent on Jesus. I mean, absolutely dependent on Jesus. And so perhaps she's used to coming to Jesus with every little problem she has, every little need that she has. That's what we can uh, stipulate. But the text just tells us that Mary came to Jesus and said, "The wine has run out. There is no wine. They have no wine." And Jesus' response, frankly, is is nothing short of a a mild rebuke. Okay, we can see Jesus loved his his mum. He obeyed the commandments of God to honour his parents. Uh, he was likely providing for every need at this stage. But there is a sense of rebuke in this, these words to him. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And for John, that word hour uh, is a very important word. Jesus will frequently say through this gospel, or John will report that his hour had not yet come. Four times between now and his crucifixion, John will tell a story of, uh, of Jesus' being apprehended or attempted to be apprehended, attempted to be thrown off a hill, attempted to be stoned to death. And John says, none of that happens. Jesus doesn't get arrested. Jesus doesn't get killed. Jesus doesn't get beaten up because his hour had not yet come. And the hour is referring to his glorification as he's crucified on a cross. Such that Jesus, right before he is betrayed, and tortured, and killed, says, Father, my hour has come. And so he says... Well, I think, uh, yeah, why did he say woman instead of mother? Um, it obviously doesn't say It doesn't go into that level of detail. But there is a sense of rebuke in this. And, and I think this is the heart of it. Jesus is on earth to do the will of his heavenly Father not his earthly mother. So, so don't read that as Jesus doesn't care about his mum. He certainly does. As he's on the cross, he entrusts her to John who wrote this gospel. He wants her to be cared for. He loves her. He cherishes her. But at the end of the day, at the bottom line, Jesus is on earth to do his heavenly Father's will. And his Father's will is that he go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. That is the hour that he's walking towards. Never has a man ever lived... That from the first hour of his birth, he has been inexorably walking towards his death in, in a way like Jesus has. Knowing that this is why he is on earth. He's on earth to die. I remember growing up as a kid, my uncle has a farm in Albury. It's kind of on the Murray border between New South Wales and, and Victoria. And uh, he, it was a dairy farm, but he also had sheep. And so we would tend to go up there in the spring school holidays as little kids, and we would see all the births happen, the the calves being birthed, the lambs being birthed. And um, the little lambs were the cutest ones. They they got born, and then you would hand-feed them on milk and uh, watch them grow. And then typically we'd be back at the next holidays when the butcher would come and cut them up, all right? So you'd see them being born. You you would kind of keep in touch and, and hear about them being raised. And then my uncle would go out and kill them and chop them up with an axe. All right? And we would have a hand both in the birth and in the death. We, as little boys, used to carry um, buckets full of this meat that had been cut up in the paddock and carry it back to the freezer where it would be stored for, for food or go off to market. And so we got to witness uh, the lamb going from birth to death. It's a pretty short life. And the whole reason that it was born in the first place was to die was to be slaughtered, was to be eaten. Last week we saw John the Baptist declare as he sees Jesus coming towards him, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is a Lamb, just like that little Lamb that I knew once, born to die, born to die, born to suffer and die, born to be slaughtered for the sake of us, for the sake of you and me. He is the Lamb of God, born to for that hour to be glorified on the cross as he's crucified in our place and for our sin. And so he says to her, my hour has not yet come. And then the interesting thing is, if this was a kind of a mild rebuke, she doesn't get snooty, she doesn't walk away, she doesn't cry. She actually demonstrates faith in her son. Demonstrates faith by saying this, verse 5, we'll read through to 12. She said, his mother, John reports, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. After this, he went to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. So this is the first sign. This is the miracle. This is Jesus turning five, six, seven hundred liters of water into wine. But the interesting thing is that John doesn't refer to this as a miracle. He doesn't use the Greek word which means miracle. He uses the Greek word which means sign. And the thing about a sign is it doesn't exist for itself, does it? A sign doesn't exist for its own purpose, it it exists to point to something else. And that's what this sign and the the seven major signs that John records, uh, that's their purpose. To point to a greater reality and that's what we're going to talk about right now. So in verse 11 he says, this was the first of his signs that Jesus did at Galilee. And the sign that Jesus wants to point towards in performing this miracle, this sign, is that There is a new reality in the universe. There is a new covenant that exists between God and His people. That the old religion of duty has been replaced with a new covenant of joyful relationship. That the old covenant of duty and ritual and religion has been replaced by a new covenant, a new relationship one of joy and gladness and acceptance and forgiveness. And here's why. Let me tell you a little bit of background. The stone jars that, that held those 20 or 30 gallons each, five, six hundred liters in all, depending on how you figure it, those stone jars were for the purpose of ritual washings. John says that, uh, he says, uh, the, that uh, verse 6 There were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. These rites were performed by the Jews, uh, and unless they performed those rites, they would be unclean and unable to access God. Unable to pray to God, unable to worship God, unable to have fellowship with God and with other Jews. And so you see there's a point uh, at which um, Jesus runs into trouble with the, the religious leaders of his day, And uh, it's outlined in Mark chapter 7. I think we'll have it on the screen. Mark 7 and 1 to 8. You see what happens here. All right, let me read it. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, this is Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions which they observe, as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honours me with their lips, but their their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So the Jews had established for themselves a whole bunch of laws on top of the Old Testament commandments, ones that the scribes and Pharisees had come up with on their own called the tradition of the elders. This was far bigger than the law in the Old Testament and it made being a Jew really, really, really difficult. There was a lot of duty, a lot of ritual, and without doing those things, you would be cut off from the people of Israel, cut off from God himself according to the tradition of the elders. And so Jesus' disciples rock up to dinner, didn't wash their hands according to the tradition of the elders, and it made everyone uh, who was religious very angry. They didn't observe our laws. They didn't observe our rules. Now, it's very, very important that we see that the water that Jesus turns into wine is the very water set aside in those ritual stone jars for this washing, for the purpose of observing those rites and rituals and laws. It's also important for us to understand that wine is very important to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Wine is a symbol for them of gladness, of joy, of prosperity, of God's blessing. And so we see in Psalm 104, I think it's verse 14 and 15... They say to God in a song of praise, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. Wine was a blessing from God to gladden men's hearts that they might experience joy in knowing that God is their provider and their God. And so, wine for the people of Israel represented, symbolized joy, gladness, closeness with God. And so, you can start to see what Jesus is doing in this sign. He is taking the water of ritual, of observance of the law, of religion, and he's turning it into the wine of gladness and joyful acceptance, relationship, and blessing with God. That's the sign. That's the statement he's making. It's an awesome, powerful testimony to what he came to do. To set people free from dead religion, from from ritual religion, from law observance, and welcome them into a new relationship with God, one of joy and gladness and acceptance. It's a powerful sign. Remember, Jesus' signs don't exist for themselves. They're to point us to a greater reality. And that reality is huge. Jesus has come to initiate a new covenant with us. A new relationship where we can be made right with God apart from the washing of hands. Apart from the doing of the law. Apart from our good works. It's by grace Symbolized here in the gift of wine, joy, gladness. Now, the reality for us today is that this is a a now and not yet reality. It's now and not yet. Now, right now, if you're a Christian, you can experience joy in knowing God, gladness, like the kind of gladness that a good glass of wine brings. You can experience that as you engage with God in worship and prayer and glorify Him in the way that you live and knowing that you're accepted and adopted by Him, you can experience that, but it's not yet consummated. It's not yet made full. What you experience now in the best days of your relationship with God is not to the degree that God desires. It's now and not yet. Just like the wine that Jesus made on this occasion would eventually run out, so our joy can be fleeting in this life. So don't be discouraged if some days you feel joy towards God and others you feel dryness. Sometimes you wrestle with not feeling gladness in your heart towards God. Christians aren't meant to be those people who walk around with painted smiley faces on, just everything's great, peace be with you, praise the Lord, right? Read the Psalms, there's a lot of lament, there's a lot of tears, there's a lot of weeping, there's a lot of grief. But the characteristic experience we have of God is knowing that we are accepted by Him and that brings us joy. That brings us gladness. That brings us security. Just as the wine ran out, so the Old Testament points us to a day that's coming when God will restore all things and the Bible makes explicit in many different Old Testament books and prophecies that in heaven the wine never runs out. Alright? The wine never runs out. All right? the wine never runs out. So it is without joy, though it might be fleeting in this life, in heaven, the joy, the gladness never runs out. So that's the first. The first little story that John puts together for us. One thing you should know as we go through this book is that John is more concerned with um, theological sequence than chronological sequence. So Luke, who's writing for Greeks, who are very mindful of linear time, they like a beginning, a middle, and an end. They gave us that storytelling style that we've adopted in our own culture. Luke makes sure that his account is very chronological, very precise, very scientific. John is more concerned about theological sequence. So he's going to take what Jesus says about destroying the temple, which happens towards the end of his life, and put it right up here at the front because it's theologically significant. He just doesn't have that mind for chronological precision. But he goes from the sign of the water into wine into the sign of uh, the the clearing of the temple. And so let's read verse 13 to 17. By the way, if, if you're wondering, we love kids and we don't mind if they cry and we don't mind if they walk around, we don't mind if they laugh, we just love them, all right? So uh, have more of them. All right, verse 13 to 17. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's from Psalm 69. And so we have here the sort of bringing together of two issues that I just want to speak about from a theological perspective and from a, a practical perspective. You've got the issue of alcohol and the issue of anger coming together here. Uh, the issue of alcohol, Jesus making five, six, seven hundred litres of wine at a wedding. And the issue of anger, Jesus making a whip and driving people out of the temple, turning stuff over, getting worked up. And one error that Christians have fallen into over the years is to, is to make the leap and say that both alcohol and anger are to be abstained from if you're a Christian that it's not Christian, that it's ungodly to partake of alcohol or to get angry. And I want to say this morning that that's overstepping the mark. That's overstepping the mark. At the very least, you cannot make that argument from Scripture. You need to start getting into tradition. You need to get start getting into the consequences of those things and, and working back In an ends justifies the means kind of way. You can't make an argument for abstinence from alcohol or abstinence from anger from God's word. Here's why Jesus just made 700 liters of wine for a wedding. Jesus' followers drank wine at the Passover without rebuke. Same with anger. Jesus just drove everyone out of the temple, and he didn't do it calmly, he was angry. Other points, as in Lazarus' death, which we'll get to in 2015, as he stands before the tomb of Lazarus, even though he knows he's about to raise him from death, he is greatly angered because he knows that death wasn't God's original intention. He hates death. He's angry at death. But before we kind of go out and, and everyone leaves here, goes to the pub, gets drunk and hits someone, I want to make very clear, and, and some people are leaving now, I hope they're not going to do that, all right? I need to make very clear that that is not the intention of Scripture either, clearly. Even if you just look at the book of Ephesians, in that book, Paul makes very clear, he says, do not get drunk on wine. Absolutely clear. What is it in the original language in the Greek? Do not get drunk on wine, for it leads to debauchery. It leads you away from God. He says, instead, be filled with the Spirit. Not spirits, the Holy Spirit, okay? So do not get drunk on wine, absolutely clear commandment of Scripture. And he also says in the book of Ephesians, in your anger, do not sin. Okay, did you see that? As you get angry, do not sin. Ask God by his Holy Spirit to enable you to be angry like God is angry. Angry at injustice, angry at oppression, angry at sin, angry at death angry at everything that departs from the will of God, angry at yourself, your own depravity. So as is so often the case, God's intention for us is moderation or at least some moderate view of those things. Moderately being able to enjoy God's good gift of wine that gladdens the hearts of men without becoming drunk, which is, which is a, a breaking of God's commandments. And able to get angry at the things that anger God without it leading you into sin and punching someone, all right? And so we could talk a whole lot more about that. That's not what this text is about, so we won't do that. But just let me make that clear so that no one's uncertain about the Christian view on these things, uh, or at least Scripture's view that we commend to all Christians. Let's get back to the story. Jesus has just cleared the temple. He has made a whip of cords and drove people out of it. And the issue here is that Jesus knows that the temple exists for the worship of God. The temple exists to welcome those who are seeking God, who want to worship God, pray to God, encounter God. That's why the temple exists. And instead, what the temple has become is, as other uh, gospels will, will call it, a den of thieves. And this is the situation. If you came to the temple in the Old Covenant, you had to bring a sacrifice, uh, an animal to be killed on your behalf so that your sins might be pardoned and you can go in and worship. And so it made sense for the temple itself to have a marketplace. Many people would come many, many, many miles to worship God. And so rather than dragging along their goat or their lamb or their doves or whatever, it just made sense that they would be able to buy something at the temple, it's like a little food court, all right? You, you buy your animal and then you can sacrifice it. The thing was that this tradition of the elders had come together and decided that you could only use their animals, you could only sacrifice their animals, and then they had put a commission on the sale of these animals that was absolutely, absolutely extortionate, Right? You, it was massively, massively overpriced. It's like going to the movies and asking for popcorn and a Coke and you give them 50 bucks and then nothing comes back to you, all right? that's like that. That's what's happening. If Jesus was here, he would wipe out Hoyts, all right? And what had become of the temple was it had turned into a den of thieves and robbers. They were literally robbing these people of their money. People who genuinely wanted to encounter God first had to turn over everything they had to be made right with him. So that makes Jesus angry. The intention of the temple has been compromised. And how many churches are like this today? Churches that should exist to share the good news with those who don't yet know it and to provide a place and a ministry for those who do know him have become a den of thieves. Pastors on multi-million dollar salaries, jets, fancy cars, Churches that spend millions on their own ministries, making church luxurious for the people of God to come and relax. Absolutely compromising their purpose. That makes Jesus angry. And so he makes a whip of cords and he drives them out of there. He makes a statement. This is not one of his signs that John refers to, but it is an absolute statement zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is passionate about God's glory, passionate about the mission of the church. And so it leads him to do this thing and he doesn't sin once in doing it. And though it's not a sign in itself, it points us again back to this reality, the same reality of the water into wine, to the reality that Jesus is taking Relationship with God and removing it from a a relationship of obligation, of right, ritual and sacrifice and making it a, a relationship. Making it a covenant of relationship, of worship, of prayer so that nothing stands between you and God. You don't need a sacrifice. You don't need to put your mortgage down and you don't need a priest to stand up here and be a mediator between you and God. You don't need any of those things that the temple existed for. You've got Jesus and that's all you need. He's removing with force, right? Jesus, Jesus, meek and mild, wouldn't hurt a fly. No, with a whip, he's removing. He's removing the obstacles between people and God. So that's the first... Water into wine. The second, the clearing of the temple. And now we've got a third little story that I want us to look at. John's account of Jesus' confrontation with the Jews. And the interesting thing here is the Jews come to him and they don't seem to be upset with what Jesus has done. They're upset with what he is intimating in doing. it. They're upset with the statement that he's making in removing these things. So let's have a look at it. Look at verse... 18 to 22. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So what you need to know is that the temple in Jerusalem exists to connect the people of God with God himself. Without the temple, there is no relationship. There is no connection. Without the temple, its rituals, its priests, there is no relationship with God. In the Old Covenant, God Himself dwelt in the temple. The glory of the Lord dwelt. By this stage, God has withdrawn in that sense, but the people of God are still gathering to worship Him, to make sacrifices. The the priests are still at work in the temple. And so Jesus says to them, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. The response of the Jews, of the leaders, is absolutely to be expected. It's obvious. Really, you're going to destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days, Jesus. Okay, 46 years. And not 46 years using the kind of laborers that I was when I was growing up, like using proper slave labor 46 years. It's one of the biggest buildings in the ancient world. The Western Wall runs for 500 meters. Just think about that. It's half a kilometer long on the Western Wall. The ceiling, 60 feet up in the air higher at some points. You're going to destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days? They scoff at him. But John makes the comment, as one of his disciples, that after he was raised, they finally got it. They got what he meant. Jesus isn't talking about the physical temple because the physical temple doesn't matter anymore. The temple that we need is not somewhere in Jerusalem. The temple that we need is Jesus' own body. Jesus himself will be our connection to God. You don't need to make a pilgrimage to Israel. I hear it's very nice. You don't need to revere a building like a temple or a church. Or some kind of sacred space. There are no sacred spaces anymore. Jesus has done away with them. All we need is the temple of his body. Destroy this temple, in three days I'll raise it up. It's exactly what happened. They did destroy that temple. And three days later, he rose it up again because he has the authority over death and life over condemnation and resurrection. We're going to get to John 10, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, and that's where Jesus calls himself the great shepherd and where he declares, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. No more ceremonial washings. That water has been turned into wine, the wine of gladness. No more sacrifices in the temple courts that has been replaced by prayer and worship. And no more temple where we must have mediated before us priests who will enable us to access God. No, now the temple of Jesus himself. That we're invited to be in christ that is in the temple all the days of our life constant communion with god no barrier no forecourts no inner sanctum no curtain no priests just us and jesus just us and unmerited but unlimited access to the father We said in the uh, prayer before the service this morning, Gino said, you know, we have boldness and confidence to approach the throne of God, quoting from the book of Hebrews. And that's because we're in Christ. We're already in the temple. We can have free and ready access to God because Jesus' temple, his body was torn down and raised up again. So you see what he's doing here? On three occasions, dismantling the old covenant, and putting in its place the new covenant of free and glad and joyful relationship with God. Let's just finish up by looking at verse 23. This is really important. This will come and bring it all together. John says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast... Many believed in his name, when they saw the signs that he was doing. We say it again. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, when they saw the signs he was doing. They worked. They pointed to the reality that people needed to see. People saw it and they believed. People saw the reality of Jesus, who He was, the Son of God who was coming to the world to spare us from the condemnation of God, the just deserts for our sin and rebellion. They saw that and they believed. I want to know, who is it that's here this morning that needs to leave behind the old religion of ritual and of superstition and of right living and of good works? Who needs to leave that behind today? Maybe for you it's not sacrificing animals in a temple with priests, alright? Maybe it's for you, it's it's this sense that you need to earn your way into God's good graces. Maybe it's a sense that unless you're the right kind of person doing the right kind of thing, then God won't love you. Maybe it's a sense that God is in love with a future version of you and not this messed up version that's here this morning. Maybe it's a sense that, that karma has come into your understanding of grace, And though you were forgiven in the first place, now it kind of depends on what you do, what goes around, comes around. Who here this morning needs to leave the superstition of the old religion? Who needs to be set free? Who needs to understand that forgiveness of God and relationship with Him has been made possible by Jesus? And everything that needs to be done has been done It is finished. We no longer operate in relationship with God based on what we do. It's a gift. Stop washing your hands. I don't mean that literally, but stop washing your hands. Stop observing rituals. Stop observing rites. Stop trying to get to God in holy places, sacred spaces. You don't need to do that anymore. The temple is destroyed. Jesus has died and been raised again. You have ready access to him this morning. If you've been coming the last couple of weeks and you've heard the invitation to know Jesus and you've thought to yourself, I will when I figure these things out, when I sort these things out, when I deal with this mess, then stop it. Stop trying to wash yourself. Jesus came so that you don't need to clean yourself up. The only thing that can make us clean is the blood of Jesus. It's the kind of blood that takes our sins of scarlet and makes them white as snow. It's pertinent that this happened, as John records in verse 23, at the Passover feast. Remember the Passover it was the annual celebration of God leading the people of Israel out of bondage in, in Egypt where they were slaves, enslaved to the Egyptian overlords, leading them out into the promised land where they could worship Him. He led them out of bondage. That's exactly what's happening here and exactly the offer that God holds out to you this morning He wants to lead you, as in the Passover, lead you out of bondage to religion, into the freedom of relationship with His Son. So it's Passover time for some of us this morning. It's time to leave the shackles of religion, to leave the bondage of ritual, to leave the Egypt of superstition, Perhaps you're dabbling in some other religions. Perhaps you're dabbling in some new age beliefs. Perhaps you've got brought up in the kind of church that said it's it's grace plus works. You need to leave those shackles behind this morning. Everyone look at me. This is absolutely the time to do it. This is absolutely the time to do it. The time is now. Freedom is at hand. The price has been paid. Jesus did die. He is now risen. Put your trust in him. Enjoy the freedom that he offers you by grace through faith. Let's pray. Father, we need your help because inside our hearts, inside our sinful hearts, we always want to go back to the old way. We want to go back to ritual. We want to go back to religion. We want to be able to do something. We want to earn our way. We hate being in debt. We hate receiving free grace. Forgive us. Forgive us for wanting to add to the supremely sufficient death of Jesus on the cross. Oh, God, forgive us. Forgive us when we doubt your grace, when we doubt your forgiveness, when we doubt that we are in Christ, that we are in your hand never to be snatched away. Forgive us when we fail to enjoy the gladness and the joy the wine of your salvation we thank you that Jesus has deconstructed and destroyed all that was holding us back from you Lord we weren't even Jews we couldn't even try and do the law we were doomed but in Jesus we are welcome in Jesus we are the new Jerusalem in Jesus we are adopted sons and daughters of God all because of Jesus. So draw now with faith those, Lord, who whose hearts you have regenerated this morning, those hearts that you have made alive to the goodness of your grace. Lord, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us in Jesus. That is everything. And we thank you for all that you're going to do in our hearts, making us more like him, making us more delighted in your grace, more astonished, more astounded, more committed to glorifying you, to making your name and your renown, the desire of our souls. Do all of this and more in this church and in these people. We pray in Jesus' good, gracious name. Amen. You've been listening to the Anglican Church Caroline Springs Podcast. For more information go to taccs.org.au